This is Ethios with Bemneti Meskan from ethiospodcast.com. Ethios is a podcast that chronicles the lives and accomplishments of people of Ethiopian heritage and people of Ethiopian influence around the world. It's about what they do, how they got to where they are, and what inspires them. You know, the best part was coming into class every day and having 44 other people who were just as excited about coding as I was and also just as frustrated with coding as I was, trying not to punch the computer in the face, and then all of a sudden being with people who understood those feelings. And it was just, it, it felt a lot more doable when you're with other people. My guest today is Saron Yitbarak. Saron is the founder of Code Newbie, the most supportive community of programmers and people learning to code. She's also host of the weekly Code Newbie podcast, as well as a program manager at Microsoft for Tech Jobs Academy, a tech training program for talented New Yorkers ready to launch their tech career. Saron, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, actually. And before we get into the interview, I actually want to read your Twitter profile because it really caught me off guard and it was funny and it was smart. Um, so I'm going to read it. It says, I wore a t-shirt to my wedding, period. I'm a developer, period. Podcaster, period. Founder at Code Newbies. Host of At Ruby Book Club. Previously in Microsoft New York. Work hard and GAF. <laughs> so can you tell us, you know, how did you come up with it? More importantly, I want to know about the... T-shirt wedding. It, it took a lot of time. I think it originally started with just the professional stuff, the developer, you know, program manager, that. And then I said, this isn't this isn't cool enough. You know, I read the other bios. And I'm like, those are so cool. And I was like, I want people to know a little bit more about me. So then I added the T-shirt at the wedding thing. Uh, and it's funny because whenever I do speaking, people always bring that up when they introduce you. They're like, Angie wore a T-shirt at her wedding. And I say, good, you read things. Uh, and then recently I added the work and GAF. Seriously, probably one of the most creative bios I've ever read. But I want to know about the wedding. Sure. The wedding was awesome. It was six minutes. It was great. Uh, it was six minutes long. It was, it was my husband and I. This is a year and a half ago. We've been together for seven and a half years at this point. Um, and so we got married. We eloped. We got married on the beach in San Diego. And how it happened, so I'm going to tell you the long story. So we've been together, like I said, six years at that point. And a few years, uh, or I guess five, five and a half years in, I said, um, let's just get married. Now, I don't want to play the game of I'm going to wait for you to propose to me. I don't want you to propose to, you know, I don't want to propose to you. Let's just decide to get married. We knew it's going to happen. We're already living together. Let's just decide to get married. And he looked at me and he said, are, are you sure? You don't want like a big proposal? Or, and I said, no, your money is my money. Don't waste my money on a ring. Let's just get married. And so at that point, uh, we declared ourselves fiancés, um, which is very awkward when you tell your girlfriends. They're like, I don't see a ring. I'm like, you won't see a ring. We're just fiancés. I said so. And then uh, we were figuring out what kind of wedding do we want to have and do we want it to be big or small and who do we invite? And after talking to a lot of people and doing a lot of thinking, there's really no such thing as a small wedding. Like there just isn't. You know, you start off with a little list, but then you got to invite so-and-so because then they'll be offended. But then everyone has like 10 kids and they have to. So it just quickly became a, a big chore. And so finally we said, well, we already have a, a trip planned to San Diego because we always wanted to go. Why don't we just take that first day, hire a, whoever the person is that marries you, I can't remember the name, and let's just get married on the first day. And so we paid 350 bucks. It took six minutes. 
I wore my white t-shirt. He wore his white t-shirt and we got married. That is amazing. Uh, so <laughs> uh, do you ever wish that you did the traditional wedding? Do you ever, you know, look back and say one of the photos or the experience? So it's funny. Uh, since then, I think we've been to at least two weddings, maybe more. And when we go to them, we're like, oh, I'm so glad we didn't do this. Because we see we see the bride and the groom running around. Like, they're not having fun. You know, they're they're running around. I remember at one point we went to a wedding in New York City and I saw the groom for all of two seconds. And he was like sweating because he was you know trying to say hi to everyone. And it's hot and he's been up all day. And, you know, just looking at what other people go through and how much money they spend. Right. That was a big part of it. When we looked up how uh, much money weddings spend on a uh, cost on average in the U.S., I think it's about fifty, forty thousand dollars, and in New York City, it's sixty-eight thousand dollars. Can you imagine spending sixty-eight? That's like someone's household income on one party. So financially, it didn't make sense. The stress didn't make sense. And you know, we've been together long enough that it just wasn't that important. It sounded like a very coder approach to, <laughs> to a wedding. It's like hacking a wedding. <laughs> Well, that's a good, you know what? I should have a whole blog post called Hacking a Wedding. This is how you get it done in six minutes. <laughs> Absolutely. Because it, it really is kind of seriously superficial, right? Like if you think about it. It really wedding. is. And it's funny. When I tell guys this, they come to me and they say, can you talk to my fiance? Can you? <laughs> how do I get her to think like that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> that's amazing. All right. Well, so I want to find out who you are. Where, where are you from? What's your background? And tell us, you know, about what your childhood was like. Sure. So I was born in Ethiopia. Um, I was born in Addis. Uh, and I came, so my dad came to the United States to DC when I was a little more than one years old. And then he sent for my mother and I when I, we, when I was about two years and nine months. And we lived, mm -hmm, and we lived in DC in a, you know, not so great neighborhood, one bedroom apartment until I was about nine years old. And then um, we moved to Montgomery County, which is one of the, the best counties in the US. It's a very, very rich, really good county, had lots of great schools and that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, about a year later, my little brother was born. He is 10 years younger than me. He has Down syndrome, um, and he's still living with my parents. He's 16 at this point. Uh, and so, the, you know, that's that's where they live. Uh, and I moved, and right now I, I live in Jersey, work in New York City, and I moved up about five years ago. Uh, and so my upbringing was very, very traditionally immigrant. <laughs> it was very, very strict uh, you know, school was number one, work was number one, career was number one. There weren't a lot of opportunities to be very social, which made college very exciting for me. Uh, and, you know, it was all about, I remember, I remember when we was uh, the summertime and, you know, there was no school and my dad would buy math workbooks for me to do during the day. And we took weekly trips to the library. I came back with literally stacks of books, books higher than, you know, what I could carry. And they were very, very, very strict about my education. And I'm really thankful for that now as an adult. What's their background? Uh, so my parents are both pharmacists. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So was the expectations kind of from their parents, like, passed down to you? Did they grow up in a strict household? Uh, yes, definitely. My, my dad particularly came, you know, grew up in a very, very strict household. He was one of two kids. I guess a younger sister, and yes, very, very, very strict. My grandmother is exactly like my dad, or I guess my dad is like my grandmother. They're very, very strict people, very, very disciplined people. Um, and it's funny, they're both pharmacists who actually wanted to be doctors, but for a number of different reasons, you know, didn't end up being doctors. So for me, they were like, you're going to be a doctor, right? Right? <laughs> now, I, there's a lot of, I see a lot of families here, immigrant families especially, and I see them being extremely lax with their kids. 
you know, not very, you know, the discipline thing is not a huge thing in the house. They get, the kids get to do whatever they want. Yeah. Academically, they don't really kind of get involved. How do you see that? Are you going to, if you have kids, if when you have kids, are you going to be more hands-on? Are you going to drill in the school thing? Or are you going to let them be free? And if they want to become artists, they become artists. If yeah. They, what's your approach? Oh, I have so many, so many feelings and opinions about this. So that to me was probably the weirdest thing growing up because I came from a very, very strict household and I saw a lot of my family, friends and distant relatives and they would come usually a little bit older than I was. So I came when I was you know, almost three, they would come to the country when they were between 10 and 14. And I think that my guess is that transitioning at that age is just very different from being a raised American. And so I think... I think that their parents being more lax might be a result of just, you know, kind of helping them transition during those awkward teen years and trying not to make things more difficult. That's what I think happened. Even if I came here when I was 10, I don't think that would have, you know, gone you know, over with my parents. They still would have been really, really strict with me. But when I see that, I always found it very, very confusing. I'm like, how you, you can wear lipstick at 15? You know, like, I can't even wear a tank top outside the house, you know, so I never understood that. Um, as far as me, so I don't, I don't plan on having kids personally. Uh, and I think, uh, for a number of reasons, but I think a big part of that is because when, you know, we've talked about parenting and we talked to, you know, lots of parents and, and kids. And I think that when, I think that you can do a lot of things, right. I think you can do everything right with a kid and it, the kid still ends up just being very different than how you thought or how you hoped. And it's especially true when you look at siblings from the same parents, right? It's like you had the same upbringing. You're only a couple years apart. How are you the most successful person ever? And you're just, you know, not doing very well right now. And just seeing that difference makes me think about, well, how much influence do you really have as a parent, especially now in the internet age, right? Where you can't really keep, you can't keep kids offline. You just can't, you know? And, and I think that there's, there's not as big of an influence, you know, on parents, on uh, kids as a parent as there used to be. And I think that makes it really hard. Do you appreciate growing up in an immigrant family? Uh, or do you wish you had some of the liberties that the Americans and natives had? No, I don't at all. Um, I used to think that I did. And I think now as an adult, I appreciate it a lot. I appreciate it so, so much. I think that I, it's funny, I'm actually in the process of writing a blog post about this where I, I've always felt the burden, you know, when I was growing up, my parents never told me I was great or I was smart. They told me that I had the potential, right? The emphasis was on the potential to be. And so I think that a big part of who I am has been constantly chasing that potential. It's been, you know, you're doing great now, but you could be better. You could always be better. And I think that came from them saying to me, you know, we brought you to this country for a reason. You have tons of family and friends and people who know you and you don't know back home who would kill to be in this country and have those opportunities. How, how dare you take that for granted? And in the back of my mind, no matter what it is I do, whether it's me sending an email, whether it's me building Goat Newbie, whether it's me podcasting, whatever it is that I do, I have that as the, you know, the, the soundtrack of my life. And that has been a huge, huge, powerful force that makes me work a lot harder than people I know. Wow. That's fantastic. What was the household like when you grew up? Like, did you guys, you guys indoors most of the time? You, you mentioned that you had um, a brother with a disability that... What was that dynamic in the household? Oh, that's a good question. Um, definitely mostly indoors. I mean, my, my parents were, they they sacrificed a lot, you know, for, for me and my brother and my dad worked 
for a long period of time. He worked nights so he could take care of me during the daytime. He was basically my second teacher. You know, he, he worked with me on a lot of uh, math and reading. And um, he just really wanted to make sure that I was the absolute best that I could possibly be in every way. And so a lot of that means spending time indoors. It meant a lot of reading, which I'm very thankful for because, you know, I think that I'm a better communicator because I did a lot of reading when I was a kid, a lot of audiobooks. Uh, he was an artist, so just for fun. So I would look at what he drew and I would try to do that. And so I, I remember sitting in front of the TV watching cartoons and drawing everything I could and just drawing over. I, I watched cartoons just to practice drawing cartoons, you know, and eventually I, I got good at that after many, many, many months of trying. Um, and so it was mostly quiet. It was mostly, you know, relatively lonely. If we spent time with others, it was mostly other Abishah families. Uh, it was mostly other, you know, relatives and, and friends and that kind of thing. But, you know, I didn't have like sleepovers or camping trips or that kind of traditionally American stuff. That was definitely not part of my life. Did you guys speak on Herrick in the yeah. house? And that is probably one of the, the biggest things that honestly just breaks my heart now because, you know, I moved away. So now I don't I think I know maybe like one of a shop person in New York City. You know, I, I, that's just in the developer tech world. There's definitely not <laughs> many of us. Uh, and so I, I don't speak it every day the way I used to, you know. And so now when I talk to my mom, I'll force myself to do it just so I don't lose it. But I can I can feel it fading. You know what I mean? Like I can. I can feel like that gap between your tongue and your mind when you're trying to find that word. And it's, it, it hurts. Like it really, really just breaks my heart. No, it helps speaking with people like regularly. Yeah. Yeah. And DC is kind of like little Ethiopia. In all yeah. the way, so it's, <laughs> exactly. it's not too hard to, to find people to speak with. Yeah. Um, so where did you go to school? Uh, for undergrad. Undergrad. For college. I went to University of Maryland, College Park. And what did you study? So I started being pre-med, and I finished the pre-med track, uh, but then I ended up shadowing a doctor. I think it was either end of my junior year, beginning of my senior year, I can't remember, and I, set, I uh, followed a, cardi, was a cardiologist, a cardiac surgeon, one of the two, and I realized that what I liked about science was the puzzles and the problem solving and figuring things out, and not so much the working with people's bodies and like the the diagnosing and the communication part of things basically i didn't want to save people's lives that's really what it came down to <laughs> and when i did that i said okay well you know i can't be a doctor if this isn't the thing that you know makes me tick and so uh i decided ultimately not to take the mcat my parents were very very angry with me for a very long time oh yeah um so i ended up graduating with an english and psychology major okay and what was were the plans when you graduated did you know what you wanted to do? Sort of. So I had always done journalism. When I got into Maryland, originally I actually got in uh, with a full journalism scholarship. And then ultimately I thought that going into medicine was more practical. Uh, and so I, I decided, actually, so the, the real story is when I was a senior in high school, my very sneaky father took me to see, um, what is her name? You know Maharat Mandafro? The filmmaker, the filmmaker, HIV, AIDS uh, doctor. No. You're talking about? So you should look her up. She's amazing. She's um, she's Ethiopian. And she had this screening for a film. I can't remember the name of it. But basically, she's a, a Harvard uh, graduate, MD. She did a lot of research on HIV, AIDS. And now what she does is she uses uh, video and film and storytelling to, you know, uncover lots of very big topics, mostly, you know, from our, our country and things that affect us. She actually recently did a film that was produced by Angelina Jolie. So she's she's awesome. And so... Which film do you know? 
Um, I don't remember the name of it. Is it different? Yes, that's one of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's her. Um, and I think her organization is called Truth Aids. At least the original one was Truth Aids. I don't know if she's still doing that. But so my dad took me to see this film screening thing with her, and she spoke, and you know, she was doing her thing, and I was like, oh my god, she's so cool, because she was, you know, she looked, she actually did look a lot like me, not just because we're Ethiopian, but she actually looked a lot like me, and I looked at her and I said, holy crap, I can see myself doing that, like literally see myself doing that. So he totally um, tricked me into wanting to be a doctor. <laughs> so and he was worked. like, I can show you the cool side of what you could do. Yeah. Yeah, because he said, you know, because before that, his big plan was to have, you know, the uncles of the family come in and tell me what I should do with my life, which does not work. And so he said, I'm going to find someone that you can actually relate to that is very eloquent and went to Harvard and has all these accolades and she'll inspire you. And it, and she did. She's, she's an, I mean, to this day, she's still an incredible person. And so that's how that started. Um, and then... When I was in undergrad, I had always done journalism in some respect. I worked for the college paper. I was the editor for a college magazine. I interned at, um, at you know, the Kojinani show? Yes, absolutely. I know you know, I know you know the Kojinani I, show. I love like, the way he says, this is Kojinani. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's amazing. So, yeah, so I got, to, I got to work with him, and I got to intern for him when I was an undergrad. My, I think that was one of... No, what did you do? Uh, I was an intern there. So I booked guests. I uh, did a lot of research for stories. I actually got to write, I think it was two stories in the time that I was there. But it's a really small team. It's the executive producer, four other producers, Kojo Nandi, the host. And uh, at that time, I think there was one other intern. So it's, it's a super small team. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, really cool. Do you um, still stay in touch with them? No, 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 he's no, kind no, of a no. local celebrity, so he's kind of a big deal in the you know news and uh, yes. kind of the political scene in, in DC. What to me was kind of disappointing about the internship was realizing how little work he actually does. Uh, yeah, the producers he, do all of it. The, I didn't he's realize. He's just the voice, was, right? Yeah, like he legitimately he, he showed up, he read the script, he asked a couple questions. He did his, and he always, you know, did amazing as a as a host. Asked great questions, but he like we were the ones really grinding and putting the things together. It was I was like, oh man, <laughs> but it was cool though. But he's the one who gets the award if he wins an yep. award. Yep. Yeah, he's definitely the one that gets all the public credit for sure. And so um, the the route, the career route, was kind of leaning towards journalism. Yeah, I think it it was always leaning towards storytelling in in some way or another. Uh, and so when I graduated, because of that internship, the person I was interning for was also um, Avisha, and he ended up working as a temp at NPR for the show Tell Me More with Michelle Martin. Which Wait, also, so who's this Avisha person that's working at NPR that we should know about? So he doesn't work there anymore. Actually, now I'm not sure where he is. I haven't. His name is Tim Beat. I haven't. I haven't talked to him in a long time. But he was there um, when I was there very briefly, and so he um, he introduced me to that team. And I had originally applied for an internship there and uh, I got a call back. I did an interview, all this. And it basically came down to me and this one other person and I didn't hear back from them. And so I, I called a couple of times and said, hey, just want to know, like, what's the status of my internship? What's, you know, cause I'm about to graduate in a couple of weeks. I want to know, you know, what's going to happen in my life. And the woman I, I spoke to kept saying, oh, we'll get back to you. We'll have the executive producer call you. And then they never did. So then I reached out to Tim Beat and I said, hey, I applied. I'm not sure what's happening. Do you, do you know if they decided to go with someone else? Uh, and so he said, I don't know, but you should just email Michelle and ask her to come in. Michelle is the, the host of the show. And so I said, 
okay. And I emailed Michelle Martin and said, hey, uh, apply for this internship. Not sure what's going on. You know, Tibbet suggested maybe I come in. I don't know why, but okay. And she said, yeah, you should totally come in for the day and hang out. And I said, all right. So then I came in. And uh, when I got there, I spent the whole day with them. And the whole day with them basically meant me sitting in the boardroom area where they talk about pitches and just kind of watching things. Like, I wasn't actually a part of anything. And I was kind of, like, waiting for someone to tell me what to do or trying to figure out why exactly I was there. And then at the end of the day, I was calling to the executive producer's um, office, and she said, you know, we looked at your application, and um, we're willing to offer you a two-week editorial assistant position. And it pays, I think it's like $25 an hour. Let me know if you're interested. And I was like, what? What's happening? <laughs> and so a two-week, a two-week contract. So I said, okay, I guess. And they gave the internship to the other person, and they hired me on for two weeks. At the end of the two weeks, they decided to keep me on for another two months. At the end of the two months, they kept me on for another two months. At the end of the two months, they ran out of money. So what ended up happening is I basically had an internship that wasn't an internship that definitely paid more than the internship where I got to actually write and produce stories like between two and three stories each week. And I'm looking and I'm and now I'm really, really good friends with the intern. Uh, his name is John Ketchum. He actually works for CNN now. And I'm looking at him and he was so mad because he got to write like one story that whole summer. And he was the one. And now when we talk about it, I'm like, man, you know, you got that internship like you, you, did, you did so well. And he was like, whatever. I printed the scripts that you wrote for my internship. <laughs> so that ended up very well. Yeah. I, I, that's like a classic case of when life gives you lemons. Yeah. Because you have no idea. Like somebody can look at that two weeks and say, you know, no, thank you. That's like ridiculous. Yes. But. And I think that's that's probably one of the, the biggest lessons that I learned. So I took two things away from that. One is to always say yes to everything. You know, my default is to say yes unless I have a very good reason to say no. Um, so if I'm asked to speak or do panels or even just, you know, I get emails from strangers all the time saying, hey. To I come on the podcast. <laughs> that too, <laughs> that too. <laughs> but to just say, you know, hey, I'm having a hard time coding or I don't know how to get started and I'm looking for help. And I'll say, sure, let's do a 20 minute phone call and we'll hang out on Skype and I'll I'll just talk to you. And I just my default is always to say yes, unless there's a conflict or unless there's some I don't know moral reason why I shouldn't. The other thing I took away from that is so I asked, you know, well into my own uh, contract, I asked the staff, I said, why did you end up picking John over me? Because the way they told it, it was like a very, very heated debate between him and I, where they were discussing for hours whether I should get the internship or John should get the internship. And what ultimately made the difference is that John was based in Michigan. When he was asked to do the interview, he asked them if he could come in to do the interview. And so he flew in from Michigan to interview with them in person spent the whole day with them and basically made stronger connections and a very, very good first impression. Whereas the interview was supposed to just be a phone call. So I, you know, just did a regular phone call and they didn't have that rapport with me. So the fact that he took the initiative to fly down from Michigan to DC just for that interview and fly back was what ultimately made the difference. And for me, that was probably one of the biggest life lessons ever and I and I tell this to John all the time I say you don't understand how much you changed my definition of hustle like when people say you know do you want to do this you say but can I do this other thing that is bigger and more impressive and I've applied that to everything I do the next job that I applied for 
was in New York City and I did the same thing John did, you know, to, to them where I said, hey, I would love to come in from D.C. and take a bus for the day to do the internship interview. And then I, you know, I ended up getting that. And so that's just been a huge lesson is just to always, always go the extra mile, even if you don't think you have to. That's a huge, huge lesson. I think we all need to kind of relearn that. Yes. Yeah. Never get too comfortable. Never get too comfortable. Always go a little bit further. So how was your stint at NPR? <clears throat> it was really good. It was really good. I learned uh, exactly how bad of a writer I was. Um, <laughs> I also learned how just very, very different it is to write for radio. It's so, so different than writing a blog or an article. Because before that, all of my experience, except for, I guess, Kojo, was um, was print. And in print, you can have longer sentences. You can have complex narratives. You can just do more. And when someone is listening, they just can't hold that much in their head. So the sentences were very, very simple. And the words were a lot smaller. And when you're typing it and you're the one doing the writing, it sounds like you're just writing stupidly. You know, it just it sounds like this is just too simple. But when you hear it, it makes a lot more sense. And so now... With my own podcast, we have a couple of sponsors. And so when I write, um, you know, they'll send me a, a script to, to read for their sponsorship spot. And I'll have to go back and break up sentences. And I'll say, like, no, there's there's too many ideas in this one thing. We got to get it down to, you know, a third of this length. And so it's made me just a lot more aware of how to communicate with, you know, voice than how to communicate with words on a piece of paper. Wow. I feel like writers are just amazing people. <laughs> I have, you know, I have a partner who... I do writing projects on when I do advertising projects. He's able to change the tone and personality of something from campaign to campaign. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times he might not get it right the first time, but as a kind of creative director, I can work with him and read it and say, hey, man, you need to make this more, you know, confident or more uh, kind of whimsical. And he goes mm -hmm. away and he comes back and it's like magic. <laughs> You know, so I have so much respect. If I had writing skills, man, honestly, I'd be killing it. So I'm kind of envious that you're both a writer and a coder and kind of a renaissance woman. It's it's definitely helped. And, and I think it's really helped my editing skills, too, because when they would come back and they would say, you know, this isn't the right tone. And I would, I would ask, why isn't it the right tone? What makes, you know, your word choice a better tone than my word choice? And one thing they would say all the time, which drove me nuts, is they would say, this doesn't sound like something Michelle would say. And I'm like, ah, oh, what does that mean? Which is so, you know, it's so ambiguous and so, you know, it just, it drove me nuts. And I would keep listening to her talk and listen to how she communicates and try to find out what makes her voice her voice and try to find that and re, you know, reverse engineer that in my writing, which is very, very difficult. So what came after NPR? So after NPR, I ended up doing um, a job at Discover Magazine, which is kind of my ticket to New York City. Uh, and the thing that was really, really frustrating to me about finishing NPR is I thought once I had that on my resume and I knew some people and I did some good stories, like I was good. I was set for life. You know, at that point, I told my husband, my, my now husband, I said, um, you know, like, baby, we're good. I got a job. We're going to make it. Everything's going to be great. Uh, and then when they didn't renew my contract, they let all of the, um, the temporary editorial assistants go. It just totally crushed my soul. And I said, man, I have this this dream job and I had no idea where to go from there. And I applied to everything. I applied to absolutely everything. Didn't get anything back because journalism is definitely not a growing field. And there's lots of, you know, talented, good writers who had frankly more experience than, than I had. 
Um, and it was just very, very hard to get anything. And so there was a three-month period where I was trying to figure things out. And I think that that three months was very, very hard because I, growing up, had always been the person in my family who was definitely going to make it. Like, definitely. There's no doubt. You know, I was the person who always got good grades and was super smart and just had it. And so to be in a position where I was unemployed with an English degree and living in my parents' house and wasn't, you know, in grad school, what was it? It was just, who the hell am I? It was, it was such a, it was a very, very real personal crisis. You know, I was the person that I made fun of. You know, when I looked at, you know, my, my friends or people who were older than me who didn't have life figured out, you know, I would look at them and go, you're, what are you, what are you doing? How dare you? So to be in that position was just very, very, uh, was very hard. And I think that just kind of emotional burden just made it so much harder to get the work done that I needed to get done. Um, and so ultimately I decided to, uh, apply to grad school because I thought getting a master's in journalism would help my chances. And so I studied for the GRE, uh, which was really, really good because it, it gave me a very, very specific goal to shoot for that I knew I could do, right? It was do well in the GRE, which is an attainable goal. And so I, I studied, I think like 10, between eight and 10 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, went to Starbucks. I had like my little setup at Starbucks on my flashcards. I think I read like six full GRE books back to back. You know, I just, I, I went in um, and I ended up doing very well in the GRE. And then I got accepted into NYU, Columbia and was it, I think it may have been Maryland. Um, yeah, I got accepted to those three for journalism. But then I got a, um, an internship at Discover Magazine. And so decided to, you know, to do the internship again. And so that internship was my ticket to New York City. Uh, and so I did that for a couple months. It was a fact checker position. So it's a monthly publication. And the monthly publication ended up being both great and terrible because it being monthly meant that there really wasn't a lot of stuff to do, you know, and my job as a fact checker was to just check the facts of all the articles and the articles weren't ready until, you know, the fourth week out of the five week cycle. So for the four weeks, I just sat on my table and read a ton of books. That's just all I did. I just read books, listened to podcasts, read articles, you know, researched New York City. And in the process of doing that, I ended up reading the Steve Jobs book. And that was the book that just kind of changed everything for me, where I was introduced to technology in a way that felt accessible to me. Um, so my husband is a, is a techie. He's been a techie since he was like two years old and got his first computer. And for me, tech was always something that like the geeks did. And my husband's like the biggest dork ever. Um, I say that with lots of love, baby. Uh, and so, you know, it was never something that I felt I could do and I had access to being like a creative storyteller type person. And when I read that book, it was the story of this guy who was very designy and was very human centric and loved the creative artsy stuff that I could understand. And he was doing technology. And so I said, huh, maybe there's something in this world that I can be a part of. And so I ended up researching a bunch of startup related uh, books and a bunch of technology things. Lean Startup was you know, the first business book I ever read. Um, Which one? And The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And so in the process of all that reading, I came across um, Gary's Guide, which is like an events listing in New York City that lists all the New York City uh, tech and startup related events, went to a bunch of different meetups, you know, read like Wired and TechCrunch and Pando Daily and a bunch of those like tech blog sites. And I basically made a list of companies I wanted to work for. And there were about 10 companies on the list. And one of them was called Contently. And they were uh, like a, a content marketing platform, which I thought went really well, considering that I was trying to do journalism. 
And so I cold emailed the CEO and said, hey, this is who I am. I'd love to meet with you and get coffee and learn about your company. And then that coffee meeting ended up um, turning into an, apprentice, an, a, an internship. And then two weeks into the internship, they offered me a full-time job. Wow. Did you ever look around when you're going to those meetups, these groups, or even these companies, and looking at yourself and saying, I'm an Ethiopian woman trying to get into the tech industry? And did you look at the mountain that was in front of you, or did you look at the opportunity in front of you? Hmm. I don't think that the Ethiopian part really came into play because there were really no other people of color, period. You know, we, we couldn't even, like, get that specific. You know what I mean? Like there were, Or even there were, women, for that matter, right? Like exactly. Exactly. Like, there, there were no women, and there were no people of color. So it wasn't... It wasn't even being an Ethiopian woman. It was just like not being a white guy was more of the, you know, the, the otherness. Um, I think that I just felt very, very self-conscious about it. I feel really lucky in that I, for the most part, have not been made to feel any type of way because of how I look or where I came from. But you just feel different. You know, you walk in and you see that everyone, it's not even that, you know, there are no people who look exactly like you. It's that they all look alike and you don't. You know what I mean? It's like, which one of these things is not like the other? It's, it's that game. And in that context, it's really hard to be yourself. And it's really hard to not worry about you falling into a stereotype. It's, it, you just kind of assume, wrongly assume in a lot of cases, that they all like each other and they don't like you. You know, you just kind of start building these narratives in your head that may be true, may not be true, but it was mostly an internal struggle than it was kind of outside forces acting on me, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So, yeah. I think so the, the perception is real though, right? You, you sense that you are different. <laughs> I mean, for me, a lot of times, I think especially in the corporate world, I'll, I'd walk into a room and I know they don't expect me to be in a senior position. I kind of liked the idea that I had to prove myself. It was kind of nice to be able to change it's people's fun. perception of yourself. You know, it's fun. Yeah, I, that's who was it? I think it was. I think I watched an interview by Oprah like many years ago, and she said, and someone asked her a similar question. You know, what's it like to walk into the, these board meetings and these big deals, and you're the only person of color? And she goes, "Oh, I love it. I just love it so much." And I thought that was so funny because there there's some days when it does feel like, oh God, I just not in the mood to deal with this right now you know and it, it, it really does feel burdensome and there are other days where i'm like oh i can't wait to surprise you this is going to be so much fun for you uh you know and i think what is it the the subtle the subtle racism of lowered expectations or whatever that saying is and yeah, i i definitely think that there's some truth to that but frankly i think that just makes it easier for me to do a good job you know like i think it's you know if i speak eloquently and if i have a few good ideas people think i'm amazing and I'm okay with you making it easier for me to be amazing. You know, like I'm, I'm not going to argue with that. And, you know, at some point, people's perception changes <laughs> in the sense that they do like something other than what they're used to. It's, yes. There's this uncomfortable period when they first may, maybe meet you or whatever. But after a while, they realize, wow, she brings so much to the table. I'm sure. Don't, don't let me put words in your mouth. But did you, did you end up feeling that when you worked on a team or something? So this is the interesting thing. So I've been in tech for five years now. And in the beginning, it was like, you know, like you said, it was just, a, oh, my God, I hope this wasn't a terrible idea. And I hope, you know, I'm, I'm not going to Columbia for a good reason. And I hope I made the right choice. But over the years, because tech has been so guilted 
by not being diverse and not having women and not have that I've seen a huge shift where it goes from, you know, maybe a slight discomfort, maybe a little bit of tension to, oh, I'm so glad we have a black person on the team, you know? So I have fully taken advantage of the race card, fully taken advantage of it. I've taken advantage of the immigrant card, the race card, the gender, like whatever card I get, I will use that. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure there are speaking engagements I've been invited to because of what I look like. I'm sure people are excited to have me on the team because I make them look better. And I'm very, very okay with that. So I think it's gone from, you know, slight awkwardness to being visibly seen and publicly seen as an asset. Nice. So after that project, is that when you transitioned over to Microsoft? So after Contently, I worked at, I think it was one, no, two other companies, two other tech companies. And I always worked in a non-technical capacity. So I've done sales, um, I've done account management, I've done a little bit of design work, but mostly like business development, that type of thing. And the last job that I had, it finally just came to a point where I said, I'm not making the impact that I want to make. I'm not building anything. I, you know, and I, and I can't because I don't have the technical skills. I, I didn't even know what code was, you know, so I was very, very limited by the skills that I had. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to learn to code. And so I taught myself for a couple months and then I applied and got accepted into a programming boot camp. I did that for a few months and worked as a developer for two years. And in the process whoa, whoa, whoa. Of- hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> First, this might be a long interview, this I'm just saying. One step at a time, all right? <laughs> Explain, I taught myself how to code. <laughs> I don't know. Because <laughs> somebody out there is curious. I taught my, I, I'm always curious when somebody says, I yes. taught myself how to play the piano. I'm like, good for you, man. How do I learn how to play the piano? Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. When someone says they taught themselves an instrument, I have no idea what that means. So I will, I will explain the code part. So for me, uh, you know, I, I did the search of what, what, what is code to begin with? Like, what is this thing I keep hearing about? And then it was, okay, I, I get that, you know, code is something that computers read and machine and humans use to talk to machines. Okay, how does that lead to me building, a, you know, a product? And so then it became understanding, you know, what a web application was and a server and kind of, you know, those, those big words, those big concepts. And then it became, okay, well, how do I do it? Well, I have to pick a language. Right. And that was the first thing I learned was first, you have to pick a language. Okay, well, what language do you pick? And I did a bunch of research. Uh, Quora was super helpful. Obviously, Google was very helpful. And it finally came down to picking between Python and Ruby. And ultimately, I picked Ruby because I felt like there was a bigger community of Ruby developers who you know, were very beginner friendly. And I also felt like uh, more of the boot camps that I was considering applying to taught Ruby. So I felt like it was a safer choice to, to pick Ruby. And so from there, I found, I ended up applying to the Flatiron School, which is a programming boot camp in New York City, and they have a pre-work. So it's basically 100 hours of work that you do before you actually start the program. And you're supposed to do it, you know, when you get accepted, but I, of course, I didn't, I didn't wait for that. And I just did the, the pre-work anyway. And so that became my curriculum. And so I, I went through each lesson. It was a collection of free or just very cheap videos online, uh, things like Code School, Treehouse, um, Code Academy. There were a couple books in there. There were a couple kind of one-off blog posts, one-off tutorials. But I basically just, you know, read those and took notes and tried things and built things and just followed that, you know, that roadmap. And so I did that. Uh, and then when I was done, I did it again. You know, I, when I learned, I've, I learned the hard way that doing things one time doesn't actually teach me anything. It just kind of makes me familiar with the territory. And usually I have to do things three times for it to really, really sink in. And so I did that pre-work twice. 
And then that took me basically through the three months that I taught myself. And then I applied to the program, got accepted, and then started. Wow. So what kind of stuff were you creating in Ruby? Sure. Uh, By the way, that's like the hot app or the language right now, right? Every Everybody's looking for a, a really good Ruby, Ruby on Rails programmer. You know, I think it was. I think now people are more excited about JavaScript. And honestly, if I could do it again, I probably would have learned JavaScript because, you know, between Angular and, you know, React and um, Ember and, and a bunch of other frameworks that are being supported by really, really big companies, you're not going to go wrong learning JavaScript. Like the, the web is just way too dependent on JavaScript at this point for that to be, you know, for, for that to not be a great investment. So I think JavaScript is more of the language to go, but I, I love Ruby to death and I love the what, what kind of stuff were you doing? Were you doing the, I took, I took some computer programming classes in college and it was like the, the <laughs> Coke dispenser machine app, whatever, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Oh, that is, sounds still, cool. is that still what they're teaching? Yep. Yep. Same thing. Um, actually, I think the cook dispenser might be more more interesting. Uh, so the first app that I built was a tic-tac-toe game, command line tic-tac-toe. Uh, I was very proud of myself. The first question I asked was, how the hell do you build a board with command line? Like that just didn't make any sense. Um, but I managed to, to get that done. And then we built, <laughs> we built an app that was for, um, for frogs. And so you're a f for frogs. And so you're a frog and, you know, you might want to have some like frog friends uh, and then you have like a frog baby and you have a tadpole uh, and then you like, you know, want to say as a, as a frog, you know, you want to let the other frogs know where you live. So you have like pond names uh, and then you have, you know, your lily pad. So it was it was it was awesome. Uh, clearly going to you know take over Facebook any day now. Um, <laughs> so so we built um, a frog app was I think one of the first things that we did. And then. Our, so at the end of it, you get to do your own project. That was like, you know, the class assignment. But we got to do our own project. And the project I built was called Noted. And I'm actually really proud of it. It was, so one of the big problems that I had when I was learning to code was watching videos and being able to take notes and have them correlate to the videos, right? Because I take notes on like Evernote, a totally separate app, and that would go to YouTube. And it was just very, very disconnected. And I found it really hard when I was going back to my notes to go back to the video and find out, wait, where exactly did she say that thing about the variable? You know, just having that was very disconnected. So we created a platform that basically showed you the video in the screen. You take notes on a little notepad to the right. And every time you entered a new note, it gave you a little timestamp on the progress bar for the video. So your notes and your video were always correlated. So you made a little marker, and if you click the marker, it would scroll down to the note that you took so you could always see it. If you clicked on the note, it would take you, you know, fast forward to the part of the video where that note, uh, where you recorded that note. So it was like always keeping your notes and your video in sync. And when I graduated, we had a big science fair. We invited, I think it was about 200, maybe 150 employers to come in and view the projects. And I'm pretty sure I was the only person in my class who only had one app to demo. Everyone else had like two to four apps to demo. I only had just the one. But I spent a lot of time on that app and it was beautiful as anything. And I was so proud of it. And I, you know, I think that being able to focus on that one experience and being able to thoroughly talk through that experience was super, super helpful in my job prospects. I, mean, I honestly think that that's actually a really brilliant app. And not trying to geek out here, but... I listen to a lot of um, like sermons and stuff like that for church or whatever. That would be so cool to know like where I took that note in, yeah. in relation to the video or the audio that I was listening to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Pretty smart. Thank you. Thank you. If you don't know, there's, um, there's actually a pen. I don't know. Do you take physical notes or do you type, type your notes? I do both. I use Evernote okay. and I, I have a notebook as well.
So if you do physical notes, there's this is actually probably one of the best gifts I ever got. My my husband got it for me when I was in school called Livescribe. Is it the Wacom pen? That like uh, basically as you write on your notepad, it, it like transcribes that on your uh, on Evernote? Uh, I don't know if it does. Probably, probably doesn't ever know, but it's the kind of thing where it's special paper so that if you click on, if you like tap on the part where you took it, it plays back the audio for what was recorded while you write. Yeah. It's really cool. Really, really live scribe. Word. Really, really, really awesome. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So you, so you talked yourself coach, <laughs> you got yourself enrolled in this, uh, is it an academy or what kind of program? I was, I was a boot camp. Mm-hmm. Boot camp. And then what happened after that? Sure. So with the science fair, uh, which was really, 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 really helpful. And it was great because it was the first time I got to talk to people who were not necessarily coders about what we learned, which is just great practice in terms of talking about what we're doing. And so out of that, I ended up getting a bunch of interviews. And one of the interviews was for the New York Tech Meetup, which is the largest meetup organization uh, in the world. They do a monthly demo night. About 800 people come out every month to see new technology and new startups. And so I ended up being, um, I think they called it a hacker in residence for them for almost a year. Uh, and so I ended up working on their platform and working with them. That's awesome. And what we'll progressed after that? Yeah. So then after that, I worked for a company called ThoughtBot which does, it's a web development shop and they do mostly Rails projects. Now I think they do a little bit more of like Swift and I think more JavaScript stuff, but Wait, I- They're I called BotBot? No. <laughs> bot, like is it- That'd be funny. ThoughtBot. Oh, ThoughtBot. Like ThoughtBot, yeah. It's really, it's so a bot hard- ThoughtBot has got a really cool name. True. I feel like New York agencies and startups have the best names in the world. <laughs> ThoughtBot. To be, to be fair, they start in Boston, so got to give Boston credit for that. Um, but yeah, ThoughtBot is, I think it's, I really do believe it's one of the best companies you could possibly work for. It's, yes, it's, it's such, and it's funny because my, uh, a friend of mine, I recommended her for a designer position there and she just started a week ago and we had dinner last night and she said, everything you said is correct. This is the best company ever. It's so, I've just, I've never met a group of people who cared so deeply about their craft you know it's not code for code's sake it's not code for business value sake it's code for the art of writing powerful programs you know and they care so deeply about their craft but they're not jerks about it you know they're really really nice and they're very welcoming and they're very eager to have everyone level up and everyone come together and build a better like a build a better world like they really believe that um and i remember when i first interviewed there it was, they had me come in for a full day of interviewing and pairing with people. And they all have lunch together at 12 o'clock. And then they have, have you heard of a cookie walk? No. Yeah, me neither. So at three o'clock on the, you know, on the clock, they had a, a message go out on Slack and they said, hey guys, anyone want to go for a cookie walk? And at three o'clock, almost every day, they would walk around the block and get cookies and come back. That's a part of their work culture. <laughs> I've been doing that for years. I didn't even know that that was a thing. There's called a name. A <laughs> There's a name. And it's like, and you know, we work with, with clients, a consultancy, right? So there's clients and the clients all know that it's like at three o'clock, we got to get our cookies. We got to go walk and get fresh air. At six o'clock, you go home. Like you have to go. And I'm a, I'm a huge workaholic. So for me, I was like, I don't. <laughs> I didn't know places like this in New York existed. I would have been there years ago. I know. And here's the best part. On Fridays, they have 20% time. They have investment time. So every Friday, you can work on, you know, pet projects. You can work on uh, things for, like, other things for the company. You can work on open source projects. You can practice speaking for a con- Like, you can do just, you know, it has to be something that builds your skills and that, you know, ideally helps the tech community. 
but you're only working four days out of the week. So magical place, magical place. Wait, so what what kind of clients did they have and what kind of work did they do? So it was mostly working for like prototypes. So startups would, you know, raise a a seed round or, you know, um, series A, then they'll come in and we'll build out their product. So basically we're the outsourced dev team until you can afford to hire a permanent dev team. Wait, so is it a prototype in the sense of uh, kind of early phase prototype or like a working like prototype? Yeah, no, no, it'd be working. So we'd have users, we do user testing, we have people come in, uh, you know, if it's an e-commerce thing, we'll take payments. So like everything is very, very real, but it'll be, we're basically your stand-in dev shop until you can bring on, you know, your your CTO and your senior developers. And at that point, we spend usually a week, sometimes more, doing an onboarding phase where we'll share the code and make sure everything is well-tested and set up for you so that you can, your dev team can kind of carry that on. Wow. Do me a favor. In your own words, can you explain the process of when uh, you have an idea to a prototype, what that means? How do you get investors? Like what is the, by the time a product goes from an idea to the market, because there's a lot of Ethiopians that have really good ideas. Mm -hmm. They just don't know how to do it. Mm. Is there, can you explain that process of like how to build out a web app or a mobile native uh, whatever app? Sure. So one of the first books that I read in in business and in startups was The Lean Startup. And it does a really, really good job of walking you through what those phases are. So I'm going to summarize it, but definitely, definitely feel free to read that book and check it out. There's lots of really, really good stuff in there. Um, What's the name of the book again? Sorry. The 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 Lean Lean Startup. Startup. Mm -hmm. Lean Startup. And so it's, it's really, really good. And it basically talks about how when you have an idea, what you want to do is probably spend a lot of time figuring out the name and the logo and the colors and, you know, doing a bunch of the, the really fun, right, branding, get your website, all, all this stuff. Uh, and the second thing you might want to do is find an investor or get a business loan and spend lots and lots of money on this thing. But what the Lean Startup asks you to do is instead of doing that, to make sure that you actually validate your idea. And so what you do is you come up with a list of assumptions, and you say that this idea that I have is based on these assumptions. So to give you a simple example, uh, let's talk about a, a yogurt shop, right? I want to start a, an, a frozen yogurt shop. So if you want to start a frozen yogurt shop, the assumption is one, that people like frozen yogurt, which is probably a safe assumption, right? I think we can generally assume that people like frozen yogurt. Two, if you want to open it in a specific place, it's the assumption that people in that area like frozen yogurt. Three, that people in that area can afford the frozen yogurt. Because usually frozen yogurt is like, you know, it's not a necessity. It's not like milk and eggs, right? It's, it's kind of a nice to have. So people have the expendable income to buy frozen yogurt. Um, and four, and this is one that I think everyone misses, you're assuming that you would enjoy running a frozen yogurt shop, Right. Because as a consumer, you might like going to a frozen yogurt shop, but the, you know when you're the one running the business, there's a lot of stuff that may not necessarily be fun. So you start off by writing the list of assumptions. Once you have that list, you're supposed to identify your riskiest assumption. That's the assumption that if everything else, uh, if that one thing doesn't go right, and if you're wrong on that assumption, then the whole thing crumbles. And so you identify that riskiest assumption. From there, you say, okay, how can I test this assumption before I spend thousands of dollars, before I get a loan, before I waste all my time building it? How do I build a very, very small, basically a prototype, right? How do I build a very, very small test to see if my assumptions are correct? 
And that's what's called the MVP, which is your minimum viable product. So in the, you know, for the frozen yogurt shop, maybe your MVP is instead of buying a whole uh, or renting out a whole retail space and hiring workers and getting machines and all this stuff, maybe instead I'll have a little stand, right? Maybe I'll just have like a little stand I can put on the corner of the sidewalk. I'll buy frozen yogurt from, you know, Giant or Safeway or Kroger's or, you know, wherever you are. And I'll have a little freezer and I'll just sell frozen yogurt. Let's just see if that works, you know? And then that gives me a really, really small experiment. Maybe it'll cost you $100, $200 to get, you know, a table and a chair and some music and some signs. And let's try selling the frozen yogurt in the area where I would set up my shop. And let's maybe do that for a week. Maybe let's do it in like the best, the hottest weekends of the summer. Let's do it on the coldest days, right? On the coldest days, would anyone buy frozen yogurt? And so when you do a very, very small product like that, it doesn't give you 100% of the answers. It's still, you know, a limited data set, but it gives you more information <clears throat> than if you were to go in and invest all this money and time building out a full retail shop. So you start with the idea, you list out your assumptions, you pick the riskiest assumption, you build a little experiment to test that out. And then from there, you could say, actually, no one likes frozen yogurt, but people keep asking about ice cream. This community really, really likes ice cream. So instead of the frozen yogurt shop, instead, I'm going to do an ice cream shop because everyone keeps asking me about it. So the other important part about building an MVP is making sure that you have real conversations with customers. They're called customer interviews. And you ask them, you know, what do you think? What do you like? What do you not like? And a lot of people, when they hear that, they'll think, oh, I'll just do surveys, right? I'll just send out a, a, an, an email and say, respond to these 10 questions. And that doesn't work because people are very bad at knowing what they want until they actually see it. And thinking hypothetically, you know, would you pay $10 for this ice cream doesn't, doesn't really work. Asking someone, here is ice cream, give me $10, that works. And so you have to be able to ask really good questions and collect information and have conversations to inform your business decision. At that point, once you validated that people will pay $4 for ice cream, but they won't pay $5, you'll validate that they prefer ice cream instead of frozen yogurt. And you validated that you like the act of you know, selling ice cream and you don't mind that work. Then we can talk about, okay, let's find a retail space. Let's find, you know, let's, let's get a loan. If, you know, you don't have the money, let's get an investor. And then you kind of get into more of like the business side of things. On the, do you want me to keep going or do you want to ask questions? No, if you could, if you could apply okay. that to how, you know, exactly. how do you apply the same thinking to, um, you know, less of a retail right. example, but more of a web? I, thought, I would love to hear that. Sure. And so the same process applies to technology, right? So when you're, and it's actually so much easier with technology because you don't have to find the sidewalk and find the neighborhood. It's, you know, it's a lot bigger than that and it's a lot easier than that. So in technology, it's, I have an idea. I'm going to write my list of assumptions. So maybe it's, you know, buying uh, frozen yogurt online, delivered frozen yogurt. Maybe that's the idea that you have. And so then it becomes, okay, what are the assumptions I'm making and in that sense, it's a little bit different because when you have a retail location, you're limited geographically for better and for worse, right? The, the bad part about that is you have a limitation, but the good thing is you know exactly who your customers are. You can go knock on the door next door and say, hey, do you want to buy this? When it's the internet, you have to worry about distribution. You have to worry about marketing. You have to be able to find your market. And there is this huge issue of the market might exist, but you just may not be able to reach it for whatever reason. And so a big part of the validation process for technology is figuring out how do I reach that market 
And how do I get feedback from my actual customers, not from totally random people? One of the big mistakes that people make when they're building products is they build for themselves, which is good in the beginning, but ultimately you are not your own customer. You're just not. Uh, and there's a blog post I really, really, really like that talked about how there's this you know common saying where if you build for yourself, it makes it a lot easier. And you you are not your customer because your customer is not the person starting a company to sell to other people, right? By by definition, they are the customer, you are the entrepreneur. So you cannot really be, you cannot truly be your own customer. And so finding the market, validating it through them is one of the harder things. So in validating your assumptions, step one, find the market, figure out how you're going to reach them, how you're going to talk to them. Show and And the MVP in that sense, you have to get a little bit creative. So a lot of times uh, there is this thing called the concierge MVP, which is basically that you have something that looks like a working app, but in the back end, you're doing all everything manually, right? So if it's a frozen yogurt delivery system, you're, you haven't built out, you know, the warehouse management system on the back end. That'll be a ton of work. But from what the user sees, it might look like you did. So you might set up just a very, very simple Squarespace website for, you know, eight bucks a month. And it might say, order your ice cream. And you put the little images there and you click through. And from the user's perspective, when you click, you know, your chocolate frozen yogurt flavor, it looks like, you know, everything went through on the back end. They see the little note that says someone's going to come deliver it in the next one hour. But what you get is you get an email that says this person has ordered this thing. And you're the one that has to run to the store get that scoop, you know, put it in a cup, get on a bike or a car, run to, and you're the one hand delivering everything. And there's a lot of startups that started that way where it's, you know, you're manually doing everything on the back end. Again, because it's a really simple streamlined way of testing out an idea without having to invest all of the engineering and the design and the product work before you even know that it's really going to work. So that's, you know, one example. The other way is just using a demo video. Dropbox is very, very, very famous for this. So when Dropbox originally launched, I can't remember how many years ago it was at this point, uh, but what they did was he, uh, what, I can't remember the, the guy's, I can't remember the guy's name, but the founder, he basically just, you know, did a, a screencast and he showed, you know, him dragging the file to the thing and it said, you know, Dropbox, everything is synced and it's all fake, right? It's, it's all totally fake, but he was able to demonstrate an idea that everyone really, really, really loved. He put it out into the world and people responded. And in that response, he said, okay, I must have something here because people are very, very excited about it. So finding these creative ways to fake, basically to fake a product. Another example that I'll give is one of my favorites. Um, it was done by Buffer. And what they did when they first started, so Buffer is a um, social media scheduling applications a lot of i use it a lot for code newbie uh, a lot of social media managers use it where they'll say you know this tweet is going to go out tomorrow at 2 p.m and you schedule everything ahead of time what they did to test out their idea is they had a landing page and you can get a landing page from uh launch rock i think is one unbounds is another splash that is another one and i can send you you know links to all these if you'd like and so he had this landing page it just said you know do you want to schedule your your tweets it costs you five bucks a month and it has a button that says sign up. When you hit the button sign up, you get basically a 404 page that says, oops, sorry, we're not quite ready yet. But if you're interested, give us your email. And we'll let you know when we've built out this product. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's almost like a, a survey. But from the user, because I clicked sign up, you know that I was willing to pay the $5 a month. 
And he had, you know, I think three different price points. You click through and every time it says, oops, sorry, not ready yet. But he gets the data of, you know, 25% of the people were willing to pay five bucks, only 2% were willing to pay, you know, 10 bucks. And he gets that information to build his product. Yeah. Wow. That's so actually really smart. Yeah. But that would piss me off too. Oh, yeah. I mean, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd be really pissed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I totally, totally agree. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are doing it. So you, you kind of... Yes, I agree. It can be very that's annoying. That's really, really smart. Is yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's hacking at its best, right? That's yep. really, I'm, you know, trying to figure out, you know, you're doing the survey without doing a survey. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. You're doing a real life simulation, and so there's lots of creative ways to test that out. So once you have that data, one of the other big things that that is advised is after you get that initial info, you then follow up with a deeper conversation. And you ask questions like, what is your biggest pain point uh, You know, on a scale of 1 to 10? How painful is it? Is it like a 2 where it's kind of annoying, but it's fine? Or is it a 10 like, oh, my God, I would do anything for you to solve this problem, right? So you, you get a, a sense of how painful it is. You get some background on the person. You basically get to know them a little bit more. You talk about – you ask them, um, you know, how do you currently solve this problem? Because if it's a painful problem, they probably have a way to solve it. It's just not a great way to solve it. So what are the other – competitors, what are the current tools, and you get some ideas to uh, potentially add features, tweak features, focus on your product. And then from there, when you have uh, a really good understanding of what the user needs and what they want, and hopefully what they're willing to pay for, at that point is when you get a little bit more serious about your technology and you build out uh, you know, um, a, a better working prototype. And then you, you know, beta test that out, send it out to ideally those same customers and say, hey, you know, we, we made some new additions. What do you think about this? And then you kind of iterate and you take it from there. Wow. Very, very cool. <clears throat> I never understood why companies like Twitter or Facebook don't actually build out their own version of Hootsuite or Buffer or, or these types of platforms that let you manage your posts, especially for corporate accounts. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with their, you know, their Twitter business and their analytics. I mean, they're, you know, they're trying to do the analytics stuff and it feels like the scheduling would be a natural addition to that. So I'm not entirely. I know they don't want to overcomplicate their their product, but build out a separate thing. Anyway, different different (laughs) topic. (laughs) So, how did you end up finding or you know like establishing Coder Newbie, which is something that you started, right? So I started Code Newbie when I was at the Flatiron School, the programming bootcamp that I mentioned. Uh, And so when I graduated that program, I felt like the best part about the program was the people. You know, the best part was coming into class every day and having 44 other people who were just as excited about coding as I was and also just as frustrated (laughs) with coding as I was. And there was such a big difference between learning in my apartment for three months, spending 12 to 16 hours a day, just, you know, trying not to punch the computer in the face, and then all of a sudden being with people who understood those feelings. And it was just, it, it felt a lot more doable when you're with other people. And for me, having that sense of community cost $11,000 and, you know, many months without an income, which is not doable for most people. And I felt like if you couldn't afford that type of experience, it was very, very hard to find people who understood it. Because let's be honest, your friends and family don't really understand what you're doing. (laughs) You know, it's really hard to explain. So you really do feel very isolated. And so I started a Twitter chat, which I'd seen a few other communities do. And a Twitter chat is when you choose a hashtag. So our hashtag was CodeNewbie. You pick a time, and for usually it lasts an hour, you tweet out questions using that hashtag. 
And so I would tweet out questions to my personal account, like, you know, what tools are you using? What language are you learning? Where are you based? What are you struggling with? And really just using the questions as an excuse to start conversations so that people could talk to each other. And so I did that for um, what I thought would just be, you know, a few months, but now it's been two and a half years. And we went from that Twitter chat, which we still do. We just did our 116th Twitter chat on Wednesday. And now we have our, our own account and we still use the hashtag. And it's just an excuse for people to communicate and share resources. And so in doing that, we've really built up this incredible community all over the world of people who want to learn to code and more importantly, who want to help each other be better coders. And so for me, my favorite part is when someone will tweet code newbie a question about something very technical it'll say you know this this api isn't working what do i do and all i have to do is just retweet the question and in 15 minutes there's like a flood of answers from people and ideas and it's all so overwhelmingly positive you know it's try this if you need help let me know happy to jump on a skype or a hangout it, it's such an incredibly supportive community and so from there we launched a, a podcast that we do we've done 92 episodes at this point interviewing both really well-known people and also newbies who are just starting off on their journey. And we're one of the podcasts that is not very technical. And I think we're very similar to your podcast where it's more about the people and, and the human side of things, not so much about the, you know, how does Ruby work side of things. And now we're in six different cities. So we have local meetup chapters as well. Uh, and we have a couple online study groups too. So we've really become a, a real community of people who are just helping each other grow. That's awesome. What is the initiative of Code Newbie? Why did you start it? What's, what's the idea behind it? And where do you want to see it grow? So I ask people all the time who I meet, and I ask them, why are you a part of this? You know, what, what do you get when you listen to the podcast? Why do you participate in the chats to kind of see what the value is to them? And the most consistent answer that I get is when I listen to an episode, when I go to a meetup, when I'm a part of a chat, I feel like I'm not alone. And that's really what it boils down to is helping people realize that coding is hard, not because you're stupid, but because coding is hard. Like that, that's it. You know, technology is hard. It's complex. You're not used to thinking this way. And so everything that we do really comes back to this belief that we get further along when we go there together. And that if you have other people to support you, you can do whatever, whatever it is that you want to do. And so it really boils down to letting people know that they're just not alone in their frustrations. <clears throat> as far as the, the future of it, um, I think whatever we do is going to be very, very much centered around community and very much about conversations and about starting conversations. I think that in terms of the form that that takes, it's going to be much more of a media company. So with the podcast that we're doing, we want to look at doing you know, a YouTube channel and adding videos, potentially doing uh, you know, uh, more podcasting type stuff, uh, doing more blog posts. So basically focusing, not again, not so much on the technical side because there's tons of people who already do that and do that very well, but instead focusing on the stories of people who are on their way to being technical and making people realize that there's, there's a person out there who they can relate to who understands them. Fantastic. What's next for you? In life? <laughs> life in uh, everything. Like what, what, do you, what do you want to do? Do you have yeah. projects that you want to do? So when, um, is, this, when travel, is this episode airing? Anything that you, that you might be thinking about. So I'm actually leaving my job at Microsoft um, in three weeks to do CodeNewbie full-time. So yeah, so that's, that is what's next. <laughs> is doing CodeNewbie. Yeah, it's terrifying. I wake up nauseous every day. 
Uh, so you're the you're the founder. You're the like the owner of Code Newbie, correct? Yep. Are you guys properly incorporated in paperwork LLC. and all that kind of stuff? Honestly, yeah. We actually just got our our trademark for Code Newbie that came in the mail a little while ago. So now I feel like really official. If you need a branding company, I might yeah. owe somebody. <laughs> I might owe my. Okay, okay. So let, let me tell you this quick story. So we went to Oscon a couple weeks ago, which is I saw. The, I saw you were tweeting. You actually talked yeah. there, right? Yeah, yeah. I gave a talk. Um, it was about like privilege and luck and hard work and and that whole thing. Um, it was it was awesome. I got really good feedback on it. And so we um so we got a free booth, a free table for Code Newbie. And so we had a big sign and we had stickers. We were passing out things. And as part of being you know part of the exhibition hall. They had this big wall of sponsors and community partners and, you know, folks who were part of the, you know, the companies being represented. And our logo was on there. And I didn't, when they asked me for the logo, I didn't realize that's how it was going to be used. And I'm looking at it. This is so embarrassing. And our logo is a green hashtag because I, I did it in two seconds in Photoshop two years ago. And I'm looking at it and we are the only logo that doesn't have the, the words Code Newbie on it. Like we're the only logo that didn't have the name of the company. That's funny. Uh, and I go, oh my god, I need to get, I need to get an actual, <laughs> an actual logo. So I might, I might call you on that. Seriously, you, let me know. Well. I'd love, yep. I'd love to collaborate with you. <laughs> cool. I foresee, and I'm don't yes. maybe plant these, you know, dreams and thoughts into your mind, but a code newbie tour in Ethiopia. Oh, we can go to Addis and spend about a week and do something there. I'll host it. I'll oh take my care god! Of that'd be so if that's so something that you're interested fun. in, we should start talking about that. Because I've that been wanting would, to do just yeah. a reason why I tell you. I've been wanting to do. I'm involved in. Um, have you you've heard of Co, uh, Coder Dojo, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I I'm involved with a, a local chapter of Coder Dojo in Virginia. So I I've been kind of working with them, and they teach kids how to code and stuff like that. And out of that, I was inspired to potentially at some point do. Uh, like designer thing for kids, like where you can bring kids and show them how to use Photoshop or Illustrator or whatever. That could be really dope if we could do something like that and yeah. Code Newbie together. Oh, that'd be very interesting. Yeah. We'll have to talk. We'll have to talk. Okay. So how do people get a hold of you? Sure, lots of different ways. I'm pretty public about you know, all the stuff that I do. Um, I'm very, I'm embarrassingly public about all the stuff I do. Did you see my my recent my semi recent tweet about um, being nervous when you speak? I did not. Feel free to cut this out if this is inappropriate for your audience. <laughs> um, but I definitely talked about how I generally take two poops before I speak. Um, <laughs> I did. Actually, I did. I did see that. Right, right. It was, I thought I read it wrong. I thought you were saying popping or something like that. Like she couldn't nope. possibly be talking about that. No, no. That definitely was hilarious. Uh, it was great because that was, you know, I feel like my followers and I, you know, we, we, we got to a new level in our relationship with that tweet. Because uh, I said, you know, I was like, I, I wonder how people are going to respond. It's like, screw it. I'm just going to do it. So then I did. And people came out the woodwork. It's like, oh, my God, I do that, too. That's and hilarious. I said, yes. Um, so I'm, so that is an example of how very, very public I am with a lot that of so uh, my life. So yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Saroni Tbarek, S-A-R-O-N-Y-I-T-B-A-R-E-K. Uh, you can follow Code Newbie, which is at Code, C-O-D-E-N-E-W-B-I-E-S is the Twitter handle. Um, and you can go to CodeNewbie.org for our website. And my personal website is also my name, Saroni .com. So yeah, feel free to reach out. So before I let you go, I'm going to ask you a question. What do you do when you're not coding and you're not doing all this work stuff? What, how do you spend your time? 
Uh, that's that's how I spend my time. Seriously, <laughs> seriously. I so no the, the, painting hobbies. No, no. Like, trying I, to create something. I am not a hobby person. I'm just I'm not a hobby person. And I to me, I feel like if I'm gonna do something for fun, and this isn't this isn't anything against people who have hobbies. Like you know, do you you know? But I feel like if I'm gonna do something with my time, I want it to always be working towards something that has an an end goal. And so, you know, my version of having fun or my version of relaxing is like building the Kundabi platform or figuring out who my next guest is going to be or doing a mock-up for a feature that I'm really excited about but maybe I don't need to do right now. Or yeah, like there's everything that I want to do that I think is fun is also very much tied to Kundabi. And I think I'm very, very lucky to have found something that feels, that doesn't feel like work, you know? But I mean, I, I literally, I mean, this is something we didn't really get to, but I spend just about every hour doing something related to code, like something related to it. You know, I get home at about 8 or 9 p.m. from work, depending on the day. And then until 1 to 3 a.m., I'm working on Code Newbie. All of, usually on Saturdays are my interview days. So usually I have, except for today, it's like the one exception. But I have, you know, three to four podcast interviews. And then Sunday I have meetings with some volunteer folks. And then I have editing. So like, Every hour of my life is basically for Code Newbie, which is how I want it, you know. And, and that's the thing. I feel like when people hear how much I work, they feel sorry for me. And I get a lot of um, private emails and, and DMs that are like, we feel like you're working too hard. You should just relax. And I'm like, no, I'm having so much fun. And, <laughs> and, you know, I think going back to the whole immigrant mindset and kind of just having the importance of, you know, being productive, being such a big part of my upbringing um, I thoroughly enjoy the work that I do. So that's my hobby. Man, it's been amazing talking to you. I'm really looking Me forward too. to hopefully collaborating with you in the future. So thank you so much for what you're doing. I'm loving it. I'm, I'm going to support you in everything you do. So feel free to reach out. For sure. For sure. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Have a great weekend. You too. find out more about my guest and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit www.ethiospodcast.com.